Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to New Books in British Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Corey Gibson. I'm uh, here today to talk to Dr. Nick Hubble, reader in English at Brunel University London, co-director of the Brunel Centre for Contemporary Writing. Dr. Hubble has written uh, on mass observation and everyday life, on British modernism, on science fiction, on British fiction during the 1970s, 1990s and 2000s, on London and contemporary British Fiction on Aging, Narrative, and Identity, and he's currently working uh, on a project on science fiction futures of modernism. However, in the proletarian answer to the modernist question, the book uh, we're here to talk about today, which was published with Edinburgh University Press last year in 2017, Dr. Hubble seeks to recontextualize our understanding of literary modernism and proletarian literature and reveal interconnections and new emancipatory political horizons that connect those two literary movements. Hello, welcome to New Books in British Studies, part of the New Books Network, uh, podcast network. I'm Corey Gibson, uh, one of the hosts on New Books in British Studies, and joining us today is Dr. Nick Hubble, reader in English at Brunel University London and co-director of the Brunel Centre for Contemporary Writing. And we're here to talk about Dr. Hubble's book, The Proletarian Answer to the Modernist Question, out with Edinburgh University Press last year in 2017. So, uh, Dr. Nick Hubble, a very warm welcome to New Books in British Studies. Uh, Good morning to you and thanks very much for having me on the podcast. No worries at all. Very much looking forward to our conversation. So, I wondered if we might kick off with just uh, a few words on uh, who you are, Nick, and how you developed your particular interests in the field and how this book came to be. Um, yeah, that's an that's a interesting question. I've been thinking about that uh, actually more since I've written the book than, than before I was writing it. I mean, I... Um, <laughs> Uh, I come from originally the London Borough of Bromley, which is in the southeast of Greater London. So I was born there and grew up there. Uh, and one of the statistics I like to talk about is in 1976, the year I started at my comprehensive school, Britain was, according to some social, uh, some metrics, the most socially equal country in the world um, in terms of social mobility, the Gini coefficient of thing, even you know more more equal than Sweden according to some metrics. And of course now it's one of the least uh, equal countries um certainly in the west um and there's a kind of that that political shift uh and and then i suppose also the way that kind of class figures in british life to the extent that everybody is kind of to some degree aware of social class i think still even in or even more so perhaps in in 2018 than 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 in periods of the 1990s when perhaps things look slightly different but um so that's the kind of factor coming into to, to what I'm doing, and 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 
I suppose I also grew up the time I, I, I grew up, I think I was 16 when the royal wedding of Charles and Diana happened and I went to a, 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 a not the royal wedding gig in Bromley, uh, kind of with, with, with punk bands and so on. So there's a kind of political edge. And there's also the, the nuclear redeployment of, of the expansion of the deployment of nuclear weapons in Europe during the early 80s, I suppose, was a political kind of moment. And then the miners' strike, um, 1984 to 85, which I suppose re-brought back a proletarian kind of conflict in Britain that was kind of reminiscent of the um, the 1930s. And I suppose at that time I was reading things like George Orwell. Um, I think that was probably the first the first writer from the 1930s that I really read seriously. But I also read Lawrence uh, at that time, uh, not not Lady Chatterley's Lover immediately, but Sons and Lovers and um, other Lawrence novels. Mm-hmm. And I think that connection between what was happening then in, in the 80s and what was happening in the, these sort of novels of the 20s and the 30s uh, came home to me. And I think later in, in, in the book, as, as we'll get on to, I kind of try and recapitulate that moment of how the reception history of proletarian literature alters in the kind of late seventies and eighties as that because those two those two periods seem to speak to to each other. And I think that was something that that that, that stayed with me for a slightly you know, as as I went through my life and I I I, I, I did my degree in, in, in philosophy in my mid twenties and then I moved on to writing a PhD in my Thirties mm-hmm. and the things I was interested in were well. The PhD ended up being mainly about George Orwell and mass observation, but it was about the, the kind of late thirties uh, period. But around that, I read a lot of, of, of things like Raymond Williams, uh, but I also read novels of the period as kind of for contextual information. So I first read uh, May Day at that time by, by John Summerfield. I read Lewis Rasset Gibbons, uh, Scott Square. Uh, I read Lewis Jones's the, the Welsh um, mining novels from R.D. and We Live. So I read all of these uh, books at that time, and it's I suppose they fermented, and this this was in the sort of uh, late nineties, two thousands, and they fermented me until um, I finally managed to get it all out there in uh, twenty seventeen last year in the book. Wonderful. That's a yeah. That's a really compelling like autobiographical angle which is of course again an important part of the uh book you do write quite often in there about autobiography autobi- i'm gonna mispronounce it autobiographic fiction is that the correct way to yes yeah so it, one thing that occurs to me there i know that you've also done a lot of work in in contemporary uh fiction and in uh, a new school of literature that was emerging in the 1990s and early 2000s, just when you were dis- uh, perhaps discovering, uh, as you said, many of these texts for the first time. And perhaps when we get into the book in more detail and especially towards some of those wonderful notes in the conclusion that really bring these discussions about modernism and proletarian literature and the interwar period uh, into their own in terms of contemporary political discourse. When we get to that, perhaps we could talk about what connects and distinguishes the 30s, the 80s, and this contemporary moment in, uh, you know, since the financial collapse in 2008. Yes, I think, well, obviously that, the, the 2008 context has added urgency to all mm. these things. I mean, I think some of those trends, the kind of growing inequality was already there before then, but this that was the moment when I think, you know, the, the, the veil was shattered, if you like, and, you know, you know, suddenly the start 
in some ways, I suppose, like that eighties moment, another stark, re, re, you know, resurgence of, of of the kind of divisions in 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 society, which which I think are uh, structured around class, but they're also one of the things I'm trying to get at. They're also very much structured around uh, um, gender. Um, if you're looking at the verges, and if you're looking today, I mean, obviously, also ethnicity um, and and there's a whole uh, range of you know, intersectional ways we would look at things in, you know, current uh, literary analysis that we weren't doing, uh, you know, so much back in the 80s and 90s and certainly not in, 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 in the 30s. But I think we're gradually seeing strip bare all these kind of kind of forms of, 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 of interaction. And if you go back and look at these texts in the 30s, you can find them in those texts, that, that's the thing that I think kind of fascinated me. Actually, the, some of these communist writers from the thirties turn out to be more progressive than than, than we think. <laughs> so one of the great qualities of uh, of your book, I think, Nick, is that the the urgency of those uh, intersectional uh, struggles, as they were in the early twentieth century, and as they are presently comes through and your discussion of the scholarly debates around modernism, around proletarian uh, literature, like inflect that they don't uh, stifle it, you know, which I think is one of the, one of the risks that uh, a scholar runs in recounting the kind of scholarly discourse around things, you know, and risking a degree of like abstraction or something. Yes. No, I think that is, um, it, that is very much the case. I mean, in some ways, one of the immediate um, spurs, if you like, for me to actually get on and write this, this weld this project into some sort of publishable shape, um, what actually came out of that kind of um, scholarly uh, discourse, because I wrote a chapter uh, for Kristen Blumel's 2009 collection, Into Modernism, which came also an Edinburgh University Press book. Um, and in that, I was discussing... Um, particularly sort of William Empson and mass observation um, and issues around that. And in a review, uh, Jesse Matz reviewed the book of the modernism modernity, and he actually um, noted in his review of my chapter, it sets up a provocative um, relationship between modernist and proletarian literatures. Um, our critical views persist in pretending at modernist ascendancy Proletarian literature has its own claim to the sort of cultural transformation we associate with modernist ideology, but our categories reduce it to a more ordinary kind of realism. That's what he said in, in the review. So I thought, yes, that's exactly what I'm going to. Um, that's exactly going to be the focus of the book, and I'm going to, you know, turn that around so that we do see uh, proletarian literature as being exactly that kind of uh, a modernist project, a cultural transformation, um, and not. And what I was trying to do was not just to sub, uh, you know, shoehorn, if you like, proletarian literature into modernism. I also wanted to shoehorn modernism into proletarian literature at the, at the same time. I didn't want to submerge one one within the other. I want to show, if if you like, there's a kind of liberational impulse that's going across the, these works, and quite often to 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 try and achieve, I think, similar um, similar ends. Um, and that's kind of important to me. So it's kind of, you know, re rethinking, as it were, the literary history of the period rather than trying to just expand the canon a bit or or, or tweak it. 
It's such a, a testament to uh, you know the truth that, that the scholars in our in our field have to believe. I think that literature is good to think with. That one of the the most insightful and appropriate ways to tackle these very questions is to think of these characters and their interiority next to one another. You know, it's not a comparison that you directly make in the book, but I'm struck by imagining what, I don't know, uh, Proof Rock might have to say to Ewan Tavendale from uh, <laughs> from towards the end of uh, Scott's Queer trilogy. So, you know, someone who finds their agency in a mobilised collectivist kind of becoming history versus uh, someone who is defined by their sort of flight from social relations. Yes, I mean, I think that, that that's a... That's a... Uh, a lovely way of thinking about it and you know somebody needs a, a, one of these really excellent uh, writers to do that that kind of pastiche uh, novel of the of, of the of the you know mashup of of, of of all these uh characters perhaps yeah no i think that is that is that gets to the to the crux of it and that actually in some ways that brings us back to that point of autobiographiction um which what is actually a term from the beginning of the 20th century, I think it's from 1906 or 1909 or around about the time, but more recently it was resurrected by Max Saunders in his book, which is called Self-Impression uh, 2010. And he discusses it. I don't think the publisher would actually let him call the title of the book autobiographiction because it's 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 a it's a term that that that, that, that perhaps didn't have the have the recognition, but I think it deserves that that recognition because in some senses, if you're talking about the the importance of literature or the utility of literature, thinking through these kind of problems of self-awareness and how you deal with society and how you uh, deal with different groups in society. I think the argument of autobiographical fiction is that this is how these uh, writers did think through their relationships with, with, with society and also kind of discover um, their own subjectivity um, um, you know, became agents within in their own lives in some ways through this autobiographical process. Whether you're talking about Virginia Woolf or whether you're talking about D. H. Lawrence or in, in other people that I don't particularly write about in the book, but you know Dorothy Richardson or, or Catherine Mansfield, um, and it's quite often the innovators were marginalised. Um, you know, either, either women or working class men or lower middle class or in some other way, you know. Or exiles, or in some other way, kind of marginalised by the structure. And you can see it's it it, it is a form of kind of um, cultural politics. But I think it's actually this imagining, this sort of you know constructing the self and working through as as Max Lawrence says, not just the good things about you, but 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 the kind of shameful things. In a sense, putting it all out there. Um, I mean, the last one of the last ones sort of before the war to do this was George Orwell, of course. The, Although he he did in fact come from a you know a, a, a much less marginalised background, but there's still that kind of subjective kind of discovery by by sort of let, letting your shirt hang out in public, as it were, metaphorically, and kind of putting all this this down. And I think it was a kind of cultural project by which people um, you know discovered things and discovered things collectively by 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 reading and and talking about it. And you you can say it's a much wider democratic thing as well uh, if you look at the work of somebody like um, Christopher Hilliard the, the cultural historians to exercise our, our talents you know he discusses in their proletarian literature as part of a kind of wider process of, of the democratization of British society it's basically self-reflective writing spread out um, 
um, and mass observation is another area where that happened, kind of thing that was set up basically by modernists, but encouraged people to write extensive diaries. And, uh, you know, so this way of writing, if, if you like, spreads. Um, so I think, I think there's a huge, um, I think it's, it, you know, if we're talking about the importance of literature in 2018, I think this is a period uh, that would, you know, do well to kind of focus and, and promote because you can sort of historically show the importance of literature, as, you know, in terms of kind of politics, subjectivity, and cultural um, um, democratization in, in, in that kind of um, period. So I think that's all, um, you know, that's a key way of, um, a key thing that we should be doing in the discipline at the moment anyway. So Absolutely. And there, there's, of course, whole, whole generations, um, certainly in the UK, who, who uh, you know, my, myself, uh, included, I was born in the mid eighties. Uh, there's a whole generation of people who, who don't have ready templates for thinking, uh, in, in collective terms about their political or cultural agency, right? It's been so long established as an individualized, uh, kind of discourse that returning to these literatures that belong to a period when these ideas were in the air, uh, can help us find a way through. Yeah. I wonder if, because we're really getting into the guts of the uh, the issue here. I wonder if we could pause and, and return just to the uh, title. And I know it's maybe a, a cheeky question to ask you, Nick, but I wonder if you could um, explain what the modernist question is and what the proletarian answer is. <laughs> ah, yes. Well, that <laughs> the modernist question, um, this is actually um, a... I'm taking this from Alec West, the uh, the literary critic, the communist kind of defaulting literary critic in the, in the 19, late 1930s, uh, in his book Crisis and Criticism, written in 1937. Uh, and he's discussing um, modernism. He says, you know, modernism, obviously, that's the development I'm talking about, T.S. Eliot, you know, uh, primarily in the first place, is the kind of development of the time. But what it shows is the kind of one of the you know, the fundamental question of our age, when I do not know any longer who are the we to whom I belong, I do not know any longer who I am either. Uh, so for him, modernism is about recovering that identity uh, when, um, you know, the collective identity is, is, is not so obvious. And then he writes a whole, he says that Joyce has made a huge kind of, kind of, kind of, so that's the modernist question anyway. For him, Joyce has made a huge, advanced by talking about society as a whole um, and that allows him to be more kind of intersubjective to, to relate the relationships between different classes but Ulysses which is what West was talking about primarily there is not um, organized around as we know around the production process you know there's not there's not too much work going on there there's not the kind of factory kind of basis it's a, it's a fascinating and absorbing uh, 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 novel but it it it, it, it and, and kind of quite beguiling in that respect but i mean uh, but but the, what west was arguing is that, is that work needs to be kind of um in there as well and then that's something i i, I look at specifically in um to some extent, it's, it's in, in Grey Granite, the final volume of Scott Square, but certainly in John Summerfield's May Day, which is set around a kind of factory. I think you can see that as, uh, or ironically, a book that was actually written, published a year before West's 
um, you know, he does it, it, exactly that. It, it is like the kind of Joycean, Wolfian um, style and technique, but centered on, on, on the factory. So you get those. So in that sense, it is providing a proletarian answer to the modernist uh, question. And it sort of shows who the who, uh, individual subjectivity is found through a kind of collective, which is not one. I don't know, solid mass just doing what the Communist Party tell them to do. Uh, or, or but it actually turns out to be an you know, intriguing intersect of relationships and uh, uh, that, that, that kind of expresses a kind of very nuanced and, and fluid sense of identity, which is, you know, exactly why some of it was drawing on people like Wolf and Joyce, is using, using those techniques to show that identity, but also putting it within a kind of political and social context. So I think that is that, if you like, is the is the proletarian answer to the modernist question in in, in a nutshell. <laughs> I think it's a testament to the the quality of your your prose and the clarity of your argument that you know when it boils down to an issue of of course the politics of solidarity requires some kind of conceptualization of, of intersubjectivity. You know that big buzzword of modernist. Uh, technique that seems in retrospect having read your book blindingly obvious to me now all of a sudden but I wonder if you could um, explain why these discourses have been so transiently separate since this period in the 1930s and why an intervention like uh, your book was required to bring these discussions back in touch with one another this idea of modernism of course being a rarefied rarefied kind of high-minded bourgeois self-absorption as opposed to uh and you know the idea of a nakedly propagandistic uh proletarian literature which you know draws from i don't know uh 19th century social realist modes and so is outdated and can't keep up with the innovations of modernist technique why have, why have those two positions uh become such a critical commonplace, do you think? Well, that is that is a a key question, isn't it? And I think um, I think well, they happen very quickly. I mean, I recently, not so long ago, did some work on the nineteen fifties, and I was very struck by um, reading at the time how vehemently the kind of, if you like, the public literary sphere rejects the notion of novels of of, of, of commitment. There's things by Doris Lessing, I think, writing in about 1957, saying, "Oh, you just can't get up and you know and say to talk and say, you know, you're you're operating in the terms of commitment. You know, half the audience would just walk out immediately." And um, uh, and the the um, you know, at the time, people people thought that the writing of the 50s was much better than the kind of joy camp writing of the of the, the 1930s, as I think it was kind of put at the at the time, I mean, which is a position that we've looked at now, and I think many people at the moment would be more interested in the writing of the 30s than than than, than, than the 50s. But at the time, there was a very solid change, and I think that the context of that are partly the Second World War, which, um, in a way, the proletarian it, it kind of shut down in some way. I think the, the proletarian subjectivity opening up because the it, it, both the actual war effort, which was such a significant, you know, strain on British society for, for, for six years, and the subsequent 1945 settlement, uh, political settlement of the Attlee government and the establishment of the welfare state. I think it shifted the um, 
looking, people could then look back on the 1930s and say, look, those problems have been fixed. We don't need to worry about those concerns at the time. I think you can see that with something like Walter Greenwood's love on the, on the doll. Uh, you know, that part of the key element of that book is the dissatisfaction of, of women with, with, if you like, working class culture at the time. I mean, Sally Hardcastle, who has this, who's in some ways the main protagonist of that novel, has this huge rant about how she's not respectable. She doesn't want to be respectable. She's not interested in these kind of, kind of constraints. And, you know, famously, she saves her, her, her kind of family from the, from the, from the doll by, um, uh, becoming the mistress of the local bookmaker. Um, and I think, a novel like that could be it could be portrayed immediately after the war, even even actually during the, the film version, which I think came out during the war. It could be shown this was the, the dire straits people used to be in, the steps they had to go to. You know, this won't be. You know, we don't need this in the future. You'll be able to have respectable family life um, under the welfare state. So that was one change. I think some of the politics of that period just got diminished by the welfare state. I mean, uh, also the um, Communist Party literary kind of uh, position shifted. Um, it became much more um, social realist after the war. Although the the actual change, the the, the 1934 Soviet Congress, which which advocated socialist realism, have been in um, have been before. I mean, it took some time before that actually worked through into actual practice. And if you look at kind of communist writers writing and other left-wing writers in the late 30s, they're not really doing that. Uh, they're still influenced by the modernists. But by, by the time you get to the late 40s, that's kind of uh, been been um, either suppressed or people are just not doing it. They're doing different things. I think those changes, and the Cold War is also another context, as we know, I think uh, partly from the other direction, I suppose, in, in creating that idea of high modernism, um, you know, we know that the the for example, later in the, in the kind of 50s and so on, the CIA were invested in supporting, you know, the privileging of kind of abstract art because it wasn't specifically concerned with, with political factors. So I think there's a range of things that happen that make that huge shift. So as, as, as you rightly say, so we stuck with certainly going through the 50s to 60s into the 70s, there's a notion of, of, of the high uh, modernists uh, Elliot and Pound and uh, Joyce and Lewis um, and then there's a notice of, of, of these proletarian writers which are now no longer even read at that period and they gradually come back in and I suppose it's going to sound I mean I don't entirely buy into a sort of kind of uh, well, I don't think anybody perhaps buys into a kind of vulgar Marxist economic determinism but I mean I think you know that I don't think the entire uh, our world experience is entirely determined by, by purely materialist means in any way. But you can see that progression in history because in the 70s, it's exactly after the point where the kind of oil crisis and, you know, the, the collapse of the of, of, of kind of exchange rates and, and the move towards the more kind of the beginnings of kind of neoliberalism and, and, and kind of financial crisis coming in that decade, that actually attention shifts back to looking at these proletarian writers and they start people start writing about them again in the 1970s um actually quite often again the first people i think to really look at them in the mid-70s were kind of communist critics you know in journals like small circulation journals like red letters um, um, 
you know, connected to, to universities, kind of, you know, looking again at people like Lewis Jones and, and um, Walter Briley and, uh, you know, Love on the Dole and, and these other um, novels. And that's and then uh, Lawrence and Wishart kind of republished some of these novels at the end of the 70s, early 80s. And it's, I think it's beautiful because that, that political conjuncture had come, had come back and there's suddenly an appetite to look at these uh, these novels. So then, if you like, that they they came back a bit at, at, in, in that period. So, But you're right, I think there was still a separation. On the one hand, you had the modernist uh, kind of text that were being treated, with, if you like, as a kind of high point of culture. And you had these um, uh, proletarian um text alongside and it's been since the kind of 1980s uh it's been the sort of 20 well 28 years uh yes yeah, so, no yeah 28 years since then in which that shift has actually happened so we get to the point where now you can discuss all these things um together equally and that you know that's quite a long interesting kind of progression that's happened over that period as well it's one of the uh, bring up a fascinating point there about the critical context into which these um, you know your your primary texts in the study either do or, or uh, are or are not put into sometimes depending on their uh, fluctuations in popularity their availability in print uh, their popularity as you mentioned but it, one of the striking things uh, occurred to me just as you were talking about love on the dole a moment ago is that. Uh, and this is something you discuss in some detail in the book, that several of these texts, to put it kind of crudely, appear on both sides of this argument, if that makes sense. Like uh, Love on the Dole, as you said, the film version could be interpreted as, uh, oh my God, wasn't one of things bad in the 1930s. We had to subvert traditional domestic gender roles in a working class home. But don't worry, we've sorted that out now. As opposed to your reading, uh, uh, you know, and the, and the more established, popular sort of critical reading now that sees it as precisely opening up these intersectional struggles that, that you discuss in your book. Uh, um, no, I mean, I think that is. Um, I mean, obviously, some of these books, there's competing, um, if you like, um, reception histories as well. You know, that you, you you can find critics who've read books one way, and you'll find many critics who, who are reading the books the other way. And that's a um, that itself, I think, has been one of the reasons why that transition has, has taken so long, so that we, we we can talk about these texts again as kind of inter, inter sub, intersubjective, uh, intersectional, you know, liberatory texts that are kind of part of of, of, of modernism. This is a, it's um, I don't know that kind of uh, I suppose that reception uh, battle. I mean, I try and get that into the book in in in, in the introduction, and that's one thing I was entirely sure about how um, how much people would necessarily want to read through a kind of chronological, my chronological history of how that might have happened. But to me, it just seems a very fascinating subject: the way positions shift and how you actually shift out of the kind of uh, you know what is the dominant paradigm. Especially as you were operating, you know, we're talking about really in a, an, an academic environment, and you've got to contend with peer reviewers and colleagues and how people treat your um, work. I mean, and I had a feeling when I completed my PhD about George Orwell, mass obsession, but not all the stuff I was interested in was going to get an audience at that at that time. Um, whereas I think what's really shifted 
from the modernist perspective has been the rise of the, the new modernist studies since um, the 1990s, where modern, I mean, the, the kind of sort of jokey version of that is now every, everything is modernism, virtually from, 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 um, from, from, you know, including, you know, advertisements and, you know, popular radio shows and, you know, and what have you. But I mean, I think that's been immensely liberating uh, academically because it's, allow people to write seriously about all these cultural manifestations that make up make up the make up the present uh, in a way that wasn't possible if you had to stick to just writing about um, you know Ezra Pound or, or um, Virginia Woolf much as I, you know much as I appreciate the value of, of that kind of writing it's great to expand it out and I think it's this 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 has made possible in some ways and plus the changes as you said the Right at the beginning, the 2008 shift, the political shift, and now we're suddenly in. I mean, and it's a commonplace thing to say, but who who could have predicted the kind of configuration of politics in the West in 2018, even five years ago? I mean, possibly one or two, you know, people very very attuned to that. But you know, suddenly the world has reverted to to these kind of dynamics. So that suddenly we have got a critical discourse. You know, very inclusive discourse around modernism, and we've got the kind of class um, conflicts, and if you like, the political conflicts and gender conflicts of of, of the present, which actually tune back into to what these thirties, twenties, and thirties writers were writing about. So suddenly, it all comes together, um, and this, you know, the, the moment um, I think has has actually arisen, and that, you can see there's a number. There have been a number of other more political takes on modernism actually published in, in 2017 books like titles like Red Modernism and, and um, so on. You can see there's a sense, I think there's a wider cultural sense that something shifted here um, and, and, and that's that's the moment we're, I suppose we're all trying to capture and, and, and work with and see where it goes. It, it also expresses, uh, again, this is something we put very very lucidly in the in the book that so many of the the writers that we consider to be high modernists were given their the sensitivity of their sort of political and cultural antennae uh, they were driven in their analysis to go one way or the other ideologically and so the kind of um, discussions around the predilection towards fascism of our most treasured uh, modernist writers uh, is is like well trodden ground because of that but i wonder if if this is maybe a good moment then to to turn to some of the particular texts uh that you go into some depth in in the book i know in the in the introduction and uh, uh it comes back throughout but also in the the conclusion to uh your study um naomi mitchison features uh fairly prominently i wonder if you could tell us a little bit about uh about how work and its reception and your use of it Mitchison's reception, I think, is is, is well, it's 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 on the rise. I think in recent years, um, I don't know about the. Uh, I think certainly think outside Scotland, I don't think uh, she was a particularly um, studied. Uh, certainly, in in you know until relatively recently, the last uh, five to ten years or so, uh, um, and I think she she fits in exactly in in in. In that kind of new modernist studies recuperation, which also includes 
vituperation of, of perhaps that once would have been described as middle brow. I'm not sure that Mitch, is, I wouldn't describe Mitchison as a middle brow, right? I mean, she's, that's one reason, you know, why I supported Christian Blumel, you know, coining it that intermodernism term, because you needed some sort of term at the time to think about these writers who are using techniques, but, you know, also writing historical novels set in ancient Rome in which they, in which they, you know, they, which are autobiographictions as well. And Mitchison, obviously, I think is self-evidently, you know, wrote herself into her novels. It's typically, she was like a, a, a gay Roman uh, man or, um, or a, you know, uh, um, a kind of, kind of priestess in, 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 in ancient Greece or, so, or these kind of structures. What the, the reason I feature on, on, on We Have Been Warned, her 1935 novel in, in, um, in the project, and for the moment's question, is because it's, it's fascinating because she writes, it's so evidently, uh, Dione Gorton, so evidently her, um, is so evidently an autobiographiction. It's kind of structured in the current, um, political context. There's a huge tour in the middle around the Soviet Union. There's discussion of her, her husband in the novel, Delay Grand Prix, as her husband would become um, in, in real life. And it's about the kind of politics. But there's also this huge section set in kind of Scotland. Um, and there's also slightly fantasy elements of kind of, 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 of witches and um, plus, plus an emphasis on gender politics and abortion and rape as well. I mean, it's, it's, it's got everything in it in, in a huge novel. Um, which got one of the worst critical receptions of all time was cut by the publisher, was not republished. Um, it didn't get republished when her other novels were republished by Virago in the kind of 80s and 90s. She wanted them to, to, to republish it, but they wouldn't. It, it only eventually got republished in 2012 by, by Kennedy and Boyd um, in the Naomi Mitchison um, Library. Um, and yet, if you look at it, it looks like a 21st century text. This is one of the flew me to that, that that kind of comparison when I read it because it has all the things that you would read in the 21st century kind of text and you know nobody would have it ha has any problem with you know mixing politics with fantasy elements with with kind of you know uh, gender it's, it, you know in fact it's, it's incredibly ahead of its it, it, its time and I think she realized something that she was uh, ahead of her, her time and kind of kind of rode back from that so for all those reasons I think it's it's fascinating, but I think it's it's also because it's it's so it is so self aware of her relationship, and obviously uh, Mitchison came from a you know a, a well to do upper middle class you know quasi aristocratic almost family with you know the daughter of an eminent scientist and a brother of um, uh, J B S Haldane. Um, the, uh, also an eminent scientist, but also the kind of leading kind of communist party public intellect of the day. So um, there's and and I think it shows exactly how um, I, I wanted to. In some ways, I ended up uh, uh, including my reading of that in my introduction to give the indication of what I'm talking about. How proletarian literature is not just literature written by members of the working class, which Michigan obviously wasn't, and it's not. Um, also, I wanted to, to show that it's kind of dependent on that autobiographical kind of awareness and intersubjectivity. And I think um, that's what you get in that novel. Plus, you get the moment where she realises, she, she goes for a kind of her epiphanic moment, if you like, in that novel, 
the, the protagonist Dione, when she she suddenly realizes that she is a red. She hasn't said she's a red before, but she's giving a lift to an unemployed um, uh, driver, an unemployed man across Scotland. She's trying to explain her support for him, and he's pointing out the fact that she's driving this car, and obviously a lady. And then she suddenly, she says, you know, I am a red. And um, it's not a position that's come in, in, in the novel before. And I think that, I mean, I would almost certainly read that as a kind of, through writing that novel, also helped her, you know, to to, to, to rethink, conceptualise herself in actual life. I mean, she's she's uh, she very much wears a, a a heart and her thoughts on her sleeve. She's a, a number of these writers appears who lets everything kind of hang out. And if you read through the entire, you know, work of Mitchison, you can re- re- recover all, all of that. Uh, she also wrote this huge diary, million word diary for mass observation during the Second World War. So that you know, there's masses of, of of material to to get there, so I like the fact that it, 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 in some ways I wanted to foreground that because it's kind of it, it's feminist. It's 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 it indicates that this category of proletarian, which could be a much bigger, more expansive category than perhaps we're 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 disposed to think of, and I think it showed how all those kind of politics came together at that period and are still kind of relevant today. I mean, especially the you know the relevant to kind of Scotland um, post referendum Scotland. Uh, you know, um, in 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 all sorts of ways. So that 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 really um, was one reason I wanted to start with that. And because she talks, is she talks specifically about factory workers, women factory workers in in the Soviet Union in the novel, which is why I've, the the front cover of the book um, has got Soviet women um, workers on. Because when you're talking about the proletariat or the working class, you have to be careful. I think about this. Um, a cliched image of um, it's not just a it's not just a a specific type of male worker, um, which is, is another thing I touch on in the book, which can be used as a kind of propaganda, not just by kind of uh, you know Stalinist regime, but also fascist regime, or indeed the Conservative Party during uh, the 1930s, or even you know currently there's lots of talk about hardworking families both in, in the US and, and 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 Britain. That's a kind of unit that can be deployed for mythical and ideological um, purposes. So I wanted to try and show foreground how you can show that uh, different representationally so that it doesn't just become a unit in those kind of um, ideological um, positionings. It really comes through in the book as well that that, that formulation isn't um, akin to a kind of old-fashioned or unreconstructed notion of um, of proletarian literature as social realism, as these characters simply having function in explaining the permutations of a particular ideology. You know, the the examples that you give are, um, of course, the, the argument you're making has to be substantiated with incredible intricacy and nuance, because that's precisely the basis of of the argument, as it as it seems to me. And so the, the prescience of uh, Naomi Mitchison's um, uh, novel, uh, We've Been Warned, as you say, really comes through in the way you write about it as well, the excitement uh, of the sort of shock of recognition uh, of so many kinds of intersectional issues that we're familiar with today, but don't necessarily align with literature of that sort and from that period. So I, I wonder if we could, um, what follows in the, in the first chapter of, of the book is uh, the study of Edwardian, the Edwardian pastoral, and you use uh, William Empson's 
uh, idea of the pastoral to give some inflection as to how you're reading the the, prolet- uh, the idea of proletarian literature. The examples you go on to give in the book and these uh, more sustained close reading of uh, certain texts give so many different permutations of these, but that was uh, that was an early formulation that you were drawn to. Is that, Am I right in, in saying that, this idea of the pastoral mapping over the proletarian? Yes. Um, I mean, it's the key. That's an idea I've, I've been thinking with ever since, struggling with it, I suppose, working through since I first read Emerson's chapter, Proletarian Literature, in some versions of Pastoral, which is his, his book of 1935. I mean, I read that when I was doing my PhD, and it, it I thought about it a lot in connection with mass observation at the time, but it's gone, it has continued. I thought about it in terms of proletarian literature. And I think partly because one of the, one of the points I wanted to get across in the book was the conception of proletarian literature in Britain in the, certainly in the second half of the 1930s, it, you know, was known as, as, as a literary phenomenon. And it was understood not as a particular fiction. Um, as, as you said, reproducing a particular kind of socialist ideology, but more generally as fiction about the working class, involving the working class and class relations, not necessarily written um, by them. And certainly all the discussions you can read by critics in that period, people like Emerson or George Orwell, you know, they're treating it as this bigger, this bigger thing. They're not treating it as a narrow um, sort of ideological set of approved texts, if you like. So, um, that was one reason why I'm, I'm very keen to uh, feature Emerson. And, you know, I suppose one reason, partly why I've been engaging with this topic over the years, to try to think through that 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 essay. Um, uh, Emerson is a, a wonderfully ambiguous kind of um, think, rich and, and ambiguous thinker. You're easy to read, but um, thinking about the ramifications takes you. Know, Takes you a long time to, to to work through them, and I like that kind of that kind of complexity. Um, but I think also partly because it was Orwell who, who actually said, "Oh, I think um, proletarian literature began when Ford Maddox Ford met D. H. Lawrence um, in I don't know when it was 1907, 1908, sometime around there." And 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 Ford ends up publishing Lawrence's first stories in. Um, the English Review, um, and according to Ford, I mean, it's all like, oh, well, you know, he advised Lawrence to to stick, you know, really feature the mining material because that was, you know, what what made it distinctive. I mean, Ford, Ford, uh, Max Ford is one of the practices of his his memoirs and, and anecdotes always have to be treated with some slight pinch of salt because that he he deploys an autobiographical approach to to to, 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 his, to his own autobiography. Um, but that that is why I think he was so responsive to different kinds of writers because he he was part of that kind of liberatory kind of kind of kind of project and I think that moment of uh, uh, meeting of Lawrence with with with, with um, Ford and actually there's much more that could be said about that than than, than uh, which I managed to get into in, into that chapter because I think you could uh, there's a lot of interesting political. Exchange going around in that sort of nineteen before the First World War um, that gets occluded you know, again was occluded by the focus on kind of high modernism in nineteen twenty two and 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 that, and that I mean Virginia Woolf's right in, in in that sense it really, you know the changes happen in nineteen ten um, or you know at least that's a period you can you can you can look at so I think that's a, that's a, that's 
one reason why I wanted to look at that, and I think these these writers are and such as Ford Mellon, Ford H. G. Wells, and H. G. Wells in some ways you can see as a proletarian writer. He wasn't a member of the industrial working class, but he was the son of uh, um, a domestic servant and uh, and a shopkeeper, originally coming from Bromley. Um, I always feel some affinity to, to, to Wales as well for that reason. But the fact that somebody from that background could become, you know, in, in many ways, the biggest, most prominent writer in, in, in England in, in the early, certainly around about in the run up to the First World War is itself an amazing kind of shift. Uh, and I think Wales um, often doesn't get the kind of credit that he's due. I mean, I think that, you know, we're, there will be, I think there's works in production on Wales. Sort of coming forth in the literary arena, that we're going to change our, our our position on that. But even that was a huge shift. So I mean, this this kind of literary culture already with people like Ford, Wells, Lawrence is in some ways setting the precursor for for kind of proletarian um, literature. And it is, I think, with the kind of as, as I've said, with the pastoral element. If you go forward into Lady Chatterley's uh, Lover, which is, is, is where we go into the second chapter of, 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 of the book, I think you can see Lawrence working out class relations in, rela- in relation to the general strike. It's a kind of post-general strike novel. He, he went back to um, um, Eastwood um, just after in the aftermath of the general strike, when the miners were still on, on, on strike. Um, and that's very much in, it, it's very much a novel that's concerned with, with with class relations, but it has, as we know, this very pastoral structure with the with the with the almost fairy tale structure with the um, the uh, the lady and the gamekeeper in the, in in the, in the kind of wood. Uh, and I think that's kind of part of the of there's all sorts of ways you can think about it's, it's a kind of a social criticism it's about the wrongness of the time but it's also he's also trying to imagine a future where the two of them can live together and that's kind of how i read the three drafts of that novel he's working through the politics of it in a way that i don't think has, has always been brought out in, in lawrence criticism but finding a way that these people can live together in a kind of more classless um society and you can even read as i've tried to suggest that there's a kind of more progressive gender politics to that uh and I think again, as you know, that is, I mean, Lawrence's reception has been dogged in, in, in some ways by by uh, the kind of reading him, of, of him as a kind of um, kind of institutionalized kind of sexism in some ways. Um, and if you read some of the things where Lawrence is actually writing about the novel, I think you know that I wouldn't necessarily agree with him. But in that that novel itself is written from the viewpoint of of the female character. So when Melor says something particularly of, of objectionable you would get her snorting with laughter or you know rejecting it you know it's not the things that men say are not necessarily the position of that novel and in fact it's an interesting it, you know it, it, it's very interesting the gender and the class politics combine make it again it's a very intersectional text i think if you, we, we can read you know profitably in the 21st century again you know i mean it, i'm going to end up saying all of these people were before their time but i mean like mitchison again i think it's kind of ahead of its it's very ahead of its time and lawrence also obviously understood himself as being you know misunderstood by by his uh his, and i think you know justifiably so in in in, in a number of a number of respects i think that it's the, those aspects both of those writers they're writing about 
class relations um, in, I suppose, wider kind of condition of Britain or condition of England kind of context, which is coming out of Edwardian um, period, and it's kind of moved, and it's, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's well, for example, so Lawrence was incredibly influential on the proletarian writers. I mean, the minor, if you read Walter Briley, you know, even uh, Walter Briley's Sandwich Man, even the, the main characters describing Lawrence living in the streets, he's going in a bus journey, and he goes, he drives past the street which Lawrence was, was born in. But he, Lawrence was also influential to all of those mining writers because that was the model. You know, until that point, there weren't novels about. Well, there weren't many novels anyway, put it that way. There's only not prominently known novels about the mining communities and working class miners. And suddenly, you know, they were there and they couldn't be they couldn't be avoided. So for all sorts of reasons, I think that, that Lawrence uh, is a kind of pre precursor and then contributor to the kind of proletarian literature trajectory. Hmm. I think your your discussion of the um of the drafts Lawrence had to get through to find a way of articulating that kind of utopian possibility of of a classless status, an environment where they could be together, it really reminds me of something that comes up again and again in in, uh, in the proletarian answer to the modernist question. Is this idea of, uh, and I might not be recalling the exact phrasing correctly, but you write often about one of these distinguishing features between an old-fashioned kind of unreconstructed idea of proletarian literature as being nakedly uh, ideological or something, and the the nuance and complexity of of, of high modernism being this idea of delaying just the appropriate amount, the notion of the the absolute. You know, not the the, the political conundrum... uh, just immediately solved by some shrewd dialectician, but a kind of delaying and revealing just a flavor, just a, a, a hint of, of the possibility of uh, restructuring gender relations or uh, a classless society, what have you. I wonder if you could um, uh, talk about that perhaps in relations to the subsequent uh, chapters three and four on, on Lewis Gresset Gibbons' Grey Granite and uh, John Summerfield's May Day. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, don't, don't not bringing in the absolute too prematurely. I think that was uh, it's William Emerson's joke about you know proletarian initiative would be better aping the model of a partial because it doesn't bring in the absolute too prematurely. And um, and I think that is um, that that is what is happening in those uh, novels. I mean, certainly. I mean, Scott Square and particularly Grey Granite, the third volume, I think is. It's probably the probably the best example of that in some ways because it's although as we were talking about you and uh, Tavendale earlier as the, as, the, as the kind of um, the the kind of proletarian subject um, and his, his obviously a, a central feature in 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 in, in Great Granite but it, the book the novel is um, and and the trilogy overall is is kind of constructed around that final um, if you like oppositional. It's not quite oppositional because there's a bit of give and take in, in the final meeting with Ewan and and, 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 and his mother, Chris um Chris Duffery originally and um um in the novel, but the, the, in some ways that's not it makes the point that her surname doesn't matter, does it? Because it kind of changes throughout the throughout the novel. Um and it's that again, it is exactly that uh, you know, I 
it's a novel, again, that falls foul of some of this uh, reception history because it was repeatedly read as not being a good, if you like, proletarian literature in the, in the old sense, uh, or rev- because, you know, allegedly Gibbon doesn't really understand factories, possibly doesn't understand the, the working class. And, you know, he doesn't show male working class subjectivity as he should be. But I mean, the alternative reading of that is he is showing it and he's opening it up to, 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 to criticism. You know, he's, 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 um, uh, he's showing its shortcomings. Um, I mean, there is a sense that Ewan will, you know, might work through this yet. Yeah, I mean, he's not, not the play, it's not, um, depicted as irretrievably, um, kind of lost to some sort of Stalinist, um, kind of position. It's a, it's a, it's a much more thoughtful balancing of, 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 of the items, but I mean, there is a, to me it seems obvious um, that a lot of that criticism just missed the point that the main protagonist, certainly of the trilogy as a whole, is you know a woman, uh, and and it's about her um, trajectory, and it's it, so therefore the the kind of exactly those gendered um, critique and the kind of intersectional element to it is is kind of in there. Um, Throughout the way through, and again, I mean, he. I think you can again, given he he deploys some of these. I mean, it's set around the land. I mean, the fe- the feature of the novel is, is, is the land rather than the urban, um, the urban center. It has at the beginning of uh, Sunset Song. There's this this kind of very weird sort of long historical. Um, was well, not that long. It's quite short, but a historical piece going back to sort of kind of you know monsters and things in in the in the kind of you know medieval ages that comes forward. It's a, it's a kind of um, almost a folk version of kind of kind of um, class history that that's, that's kind of employed in it. And I think it's the way he he, he knits these um, frameworks together to show that there's a bigger perspective for looking at these issues than perhaps the primary. Uh, concerns of the Communist Party, for example, in the early 19, 1930s. He's trying to show a kind of wider perspective. And I think that's why it, 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 it kind of opens that up so much. And again, the ending is, um, well, the, the ending of, of, of Grey Granite is much discussed <laughs> in the literature. Um, um, whether, you know, uh, Kostrafi dies or is not dead or, you know, what's this means? Is it a kind of defeatism, revolutionary defeatism and, 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 and so on. But I mean, I, I do, uh, read it and I, I think other, other people have read it that way. There's a more kind of transformational shift. It's almost as though she's left our universe, which doesn't mean she's just dead in a materialist sense, but it, it's, it's exactly that sense of the absolute um, deferred absolute. There's a taste, there's a suggestion, if you like, of the absolute, but it's not, um, it's certainly not been brought in, um, prematurely. Um, and I think that it, that, that kind of, um, I mean, that, I suppose there's also a moment that, you know, obviously, there's, there's endless philosophical writing about the absolute, but, um, I think it's exactly these texts, um, show this relationship of, of, I suppose, this kind of going beyond, if you like, getting beyond, I suppose it's, it's a kind of um, achieving a kind of subjective consciousness and agency that just puts you beyond the kind of constraints of the society you're you're in. And I think that, that you know, that that could be seen as a, a kind of typically modernist 
in polls, like, whether you're talking about something like Virginia Woolf. But it's kind of key also to this, these proletarian uh, kind of texts, because it's not just about, you know, improving the conditions of the working class so then we need to stop worrying about these conditions or you know getting out of the class and becoming becoming middle class it's, a, it's an idea that there's some sort of wider kind of shifting consciousness available and i think that's very clear in, in mitchison and 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 given and you know we could have another conversation about how that how that feeds into modern scottish consciousness but uh, um but i think it's also that, that that's something that that happens in the in these texts, a kind of transformational um, moment, which is not suggested. I mean, that's that's the kind of key thing. And I think in some ways, it, it, the, the literature is a better exploration of that. It, I think it makes more sense to people if they're reading that text and identifying with that um, protagonist. Um, I think that, in some senses, is the natural mode of of, of dispersing those kind of ideas so that's also I suppose something I'm trying to get across in the book It's interesting that tension you know given how radical and kind of distant those uh, emancipatory horizons at the the end of the Scots Queer trilogy are um, it's interesting that that's that transcendence that glimmer of the absolute has to have gone through the sort of crucible of uh, of social struggles for emancipation that, that followed Chris through that trilogy. And I wonder if that's maybe uh, that tension is, is will provide us with a good segue to, to John Summerfield's May Day. Yes. Um, no, I think it is the, the um, that was obviously the key issue, the social struggle, the relationship of the social struggle to the, um, to the individual trans transcendence which is not i think it is also kind of intersubjective transcendence i mean as a final point i'm given i mean that his use of the, the second person um you is um a kind of a collective uh or you know at least an inclusive uh way of kind of kind of expressing these ideas um, and that does actually take us very i mean well actually into summerfield because what summerfield does is I mean, May Day, for those who haven't read it, although it's three days, but it's unlike the one day of Mrs. Dalloway. It's kind of like Mrs. Dalloway, but set around um, a factory. So it uses some of the same devices. I mean, there's a bit of Dos Patos in there as well, but it it uses some of the same devices, such as, uh, you know, different groups of people seeing the same aeroplane, you know, to provide the kind of, obviously it's cinematic, both texts are cinematically influenced in that sense of, of, of the kind of tapping. Kind of possibility, um, and it structures this around um, the factory. So the struggle of the factory is is, is kind of central, um, and the struggle actually in the text actually starts with the women workers in the factory because a, 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 a woman's hair gets injured in the machine, and it's they who lead the de- deputation to the to the union, and 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 the, and the struggle builds out in that way. But interestingly. Also, the, the only vision, the visions of the future in that novel, which are not um, so transcendental. So, Summerfield is also another way of thinking about how this tradition feeds back into some aspects of what became the kind of post-war um, welfare state. Um, 
But some of the, the view the view of the future that's given in that book is is is, is the woman Martine, who's the who's the um, the wife of, of of one of the. It's a bit difficult to talk about central characters in in May Day because there's about over a hundred, I think, named <laughs> characters, and we don't spend you know some of them feature a bit more. But the the two brothers who are who are among the sort of half a dozen more prominent uh, characters, one of them is, is is John, I think, and it's Martine is his wife, and she, to be fair, is also one of the the more prominently featured characters in the novel. And it's her kind of imagination and she wants something to be a bit a bit better, a nicer stuff. It's her kind of domestic imagination of a better future, which is also um, a, a kind of a, a implicitly a more expansive, emancipated future as well that kind of drives the, the novel kind of materialistly. I mean, Sunfield was, was a member of the party, um, he wrote this just before going off to, to, to fight in the Spanish Civil War. Uh, suddenly he wrote, a, for example, obvious propaganda novel, Trouble in Port, Port Street, which I also discuss in the book, which is, you know, about organisationalised version of organise a rent strike, you know. So he, 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 he was involved in the day-to-day political struggle, and this element is in, is in the novel, kind of working relations. But it, it's also the extent to which it goes on the, the kind of consciousness, particularly of the women workers, and how they interact with the, with the consciousness of other workers in the novel, and also into uh, the family who own the uh, factory. So you do get up into a kind of more uh, Mrs. Dalloway-like um, moments. Even even the cook, the cook is falling asleep, thinking that tomorrow she's going to make a, I can't remember what it is, she's going to make a cake or something. It's almost like a direct uh, Mrs. Dalloway uh, Kind of, kind of quite a, 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 an affectionate pastiche almost of, of, of Wolf. So it puts all these elements um, together, and I think in, 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 in to make the point that it's a kind of shift, a collective shift of consciousness in in London. It's it, the ending point of the novels. Everyone is it, everyone is agreed on the need for a big change, um, but um, it's not. Because of the way he individualizes it, it basically is, I mean, you know, it's an, it's an autobiographiction of London in some way, um, with a kind of this intersubjective, intersectional element. It, it's not, it can't be reduced to that kind of propagandistic um, line. And there's, there's a kind of sense that everybody could experience that kind of emancipatory um, moment. Um, or that potential, and I think that that's what it's about, and why it works. Why it's such a, I think, in some ways, it's a key, it's a key proletarian answer to that one. This one of one of the writers who's probably most engaged with modernist writers and and, and writing something of that kind. Um, I also think it, it captures that moment. It captures an actual historical moment where women workers were becoming more important. I mean, the thirties. Was actually the period where more women started working in industrial kind of occupations and as domestic servants. That shift, you know, which had been the primary employer, um, it was in the aftermath of the general strike, nineteen twenty-six, where, if you like, the, the working, the male working class had been defeated, uh, and also another context would be the nineteen twenty-eight equal franchise vote, where you know women got the vote to twenty-one as. as which hadn't been the original position in 1918. So the, the, the franchise had been equal. That shift meant, meant women were suddenly political agents. Unions were actually actively recruiting women. Somebody like the, the people like the Transport and General Workers Union 
you know, there were women pages in the union publications. Women workers actually led the, the kind of agitation for the kind of uh, holiday, um, paid holiday, at which I think came in sort of sometime in the period 1938 or something. So it actually captures a, a real um, moment of that kind of activity, So, uh, which he relates to, I think, if you like, the emancipatory kind of awareness of, of modernism. And I think that's why it's an interesting... It's an interesting book. It's a, it, it, it's a bit crude to say it's it's Virginia Woolf applied to proletarian literature, but in some ways you can see you can see that inspiration um, motivating it. And I think it actually, in some ways, I think it that carries on. Summerfield still has some the logic of that has some purchase in in the post-war kind of period. You can see it all the way. I think I actually suggest you can see it all going up the way uh, the kind of working class. Uh, women workers, for example, um, at the end of the 60s in, in, in the strike at Paul Dagenham, um, which actually led to the Equal Pay Act. You can see that there's a direct line going back to the politics of the purchase that resulted in that, that kind of fundamental moment of equality, uh, which, which happened, you know, in the 1970s. And, you know, you can see the film made in Dagenham, which was in 2010. You can see it's a very late work of proletarian literature. In that's in that's in some ways, the, the, I think it's films that actually you may see stuff that looks directly like some of those texts of the thirty things like Made in, in Dagenham and Pride, uh, the, the film about the minor strike, and um, other examples like that. You can still see that there's a kind of cultural um, continuity that comes through from from these thirty texts in those um, that you know that doesn't necessarily come through. Um, Elsewhere, so it's a slightly. It's, it's. It's. I think it shows that it's. It's. Just, it's. It becomes more complicated. Um, in that sense, and you can see how something like Summerfield can fit more into the post-war paradigm, in a way that the other texts. Mind you, not that. Not that maybe read in the post-war. I, it doesn't get republished. It's um. So it's not again into this notion of the the, the real material struggles and and, and victories of. Emancipatory political agitation throughout the twentieth century is it is a nice um, point uh, to turn to your fifth and, and final chapter because it begins as you're saying uh, Summerfield's May Day is uh, a kind of proletarian uh, Mrs Dalloway your fifth chapter begins with um, Virginia Woolf responding to the criticisms uh, you know that are are fairly familiar to us of her being an elitist and her work. Uh, being elitist, and that chapter is titled "Outsider Observations," and I just wanted to 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 let you know how, how much I love that formulation towards the end of the book because precisely one of the problems you described is, uh, in in such thrilling detail is this idea that, uh, of course, the mod, the high modernists were allowed are permitted to have been influenced by mass culture by. The, the culture and uh, cultural and political implications of like enfranchisement and what have you, but proletarian writers were not, according to a sort of classic discourse, uh, permitted to be influenced by high modernism, right? That it's like a one-way valve or something. So you're, you're putting Wolf uh, and a selection of other uh, major writers on the outside of your discussion is a lovely inversion of, of that problem, I think. I wonder if you could talk a little about that final section. Yes. Um, it, what it is, it, I suppose, in, in in that session, what I'm trying to get at is 
come at again the kind of centrality of these concerns to modernism. It's not just I'm not just trying to. Um, I mean, there was some discussion originally with the publisher whether the book should be called Proletarian Literature and Modernism, or um, or, or or this title which I proposed originally. But fortunately, you know, I've been advised to stick to stick with the title. So I stuck with it. But also, I didn't want the and um, relation. So I've devoted a certain amount of time in the book to trying to argue that proletarian literature is modernist. It, you know, in some sense, with, 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 with Gibbon and Summerfield and, 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 and Mitchison as well. But I also wanted to, and, you know, also other people get, I discuss in less detail, but they're in there like James Bark and so on. Um, but also, um, I wanted to show that modernist literature is in some way proletarian, um, which is why I wanted to, to, to discuss Virginia Woolf again. I mean, I did discuss her a bit in the Edwardian uh, chapter as well, I think, and, and um, but I wanted to, to come back exactly to that where she argues uh, exactly that, you know, actually, you know, she's, she's gone on the kitchen for the WEA. She, she also didn't have, you know, X, Y, and Z advantages. I really like that. I, I like that, that, that defense uh, that she makes. And also she talks about this, and then I go on to discuss her interaction with the Women's Cooperative Guild and, 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 the introductory letter um, she wrote to the, that sort of 1930 anthology of, of, of memoirs of members of the, of the women's um, cooperative guild. And it's kind of, she does do those, you know, she says, she sort of imagines getting the bath ready for the, the minor, you know, her mining husband. And it is a kind of exercise in um, proletarian which actually comes very close, I think, in some ways to... I don't think that you can say there's a difference between her, although she's it, it's, it's kind of metafictional, she's obviously doing it in, in, in an introduction, she's aware of what she's doing and, she, and she's kind of discussing it um, and, and the problems of it. But I don't think it's so different to the way that some writers were were, were, were actually writing. So, for example, Ethel Carney Holdsworth, uh, a, a work-class writer writing... I mean, her final book, This Slavery, starts the long period with, 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 with the three women in a kitchen kind of talking. And it's a very, you know, they're having a very sophisticated, you know, political, wide-ranging kind of conversation. And I don't think there's anything really structurally different in what these kind of writers are are doing. And that's what I was trying to show with, 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 with Wolf, that, you know, it's not just that. We can look at proletarian literature as modernist. We can also look at sort of, sort of modernist things as part of this kind of proletarian emancipatory kind of drive. I mean, why else is Wolf writing this introductory letter to these women's? Um, but I mean, she comes to the conclusion that, you know, the key thing is they had a room, the cooperative guild built them, and they could meet and talk. So it kind of ties into her kind of room of her own um, argument. And then it also goes on to, 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 re- Take this forward to three guineas, which again is a kind of is an emancipatory utopian uh, vision. It's kind of grounded in, in different women's experience and the letters that Wolf wrote, uh, you know, received from women writers, including working class women, who she then, uh, you know, goes on to have an extended kind of correspondence with. So there is that. I just wanted to highlight that because I think it's different to the kind of cliched, stereotypical Virginia um, that. that that, that we're given, and it shows those concerns. They are, I think, they, they stem from that autobiographical impulse 
you know, if you want to write about yourself and really explore yourself, you have to explore kind of intersubjective relations and intersectional relations. And that's not just with people, you know, in, in your own class, with, you know, also with, you know, all, the, all the, the masses when you're in the streets outside the cinema or, you know, the, the, the servants or, 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 you know, workers or people that you end up kind of um, publishing with the Hogarth Press or whatever. I think she's in, in the same space as the kind of proletarian writers. And I wanted to show that she is part of that space, as is, you know, George Orwell and, and, and Mitchison, who, again, I've sort of come back to in, 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 in that chapter. Mitchison actually wrote to um, uh, Virginia Woolf after Free Guineas. Hers is one of the kind of Free Guineas letters and i just think that's that's kind of that interesting um kind of connection uh with, 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 with two people who, who although they wrote differently are, are carrying out similar autobiographical projects which actually align them with, with with wider um you know beyond their own kind of class area to a wider kind of political project and you know i'm trying to to get that paradigm out there as much with the book as it's not just about uh, re reviving certain proletarian texts, it's definitely trying to make that argument as well. That actually, we I think we've come uh, full circle by connecting Mitchison to, to, to Wolf <laughs> there. Yeah, the, uh, there's the famous uh, Wolf essay in modern fiction, of course, that describes that you know the, the net of modern fiction not being free standing but being connected. Uh, to social and material contexts, if you like, when you try to tug it free. I wonder if that's uh, perhaps a nice note to to end a discussion of the, the book on. I, I do want to return just briefly to this, uh, some lovely moments in the, in the conclusion to your book. You really do recontextualize uh, lots of this discussion in light of um, contributions to contemporary political analysis, um, and you know what readers uh, writers students of uh, of literature um how they perhaps can apply the lessons of these texts to our contemporary context just as the neoliberal consensus crumbles all around us but um i think we've taken up uh, perhaps enough of your time if you had any thoughts on that i'd love to to hear them and then perhaps you might tell us what you're currently working on before we uh, we close up, um, yeah, I mean, I think well, partly with, with the contemporary thing. While I was writing, I mean, um, while I was finishing up writing, uh, writing the conclusion, actually, Trump got elected, so that provides one <laughs> one kind of con and I've just been at the Modernist Studies Association uh, annual conference in Pasadena, and actually started with the election, and obviously that put a, a kind of uh, Obviously, an American academic is obviously very concerned about that situation. Well, as as you know, possibly everybody else as well. Um, so that that did give a certain heightened context, uh, and I think it's. I mean, in some ways, there the discussion was: what is the history of you know, and where's modernism going? And I suppose one of my the argument I wanted to make: well, I think modernism needs to move to look at you know being focusing on this more political, intersectional, into you know, uh, subjective. Kind of, kind of focus. I think the, the the inclusive expansionist, you know, period of the last twenty years has been great, but it's probably reaching it's reaching the position where it's going to start splitting. And what we don't want to end up is splitting back to a more 
uh, you know, refined, uh, if you like, or high modernist or uh, limited uh, kind of vision of of modernism. And I think you know, it, it, it would be naive to imagine that, that there's not going to be some impulse in that direction happening. You know, that there's, 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 we're in a very kind of fluid political position and there's a certain amount of counter-revolutionary acts well, just going on in everyday life and politics you know around the world so i don't think we should be surprised if we end up with something like a more you know a kind of active masculine version of kind of subjectivity you know being pushed for in in in, in some area so i'm trying to suggest that we need to you know kind of organize and and shift against that which is you know a, you know one prime argument for looking again at these texts and you know rethinking that literary um rethinking that literary history um i mean going forward um i've got a couple of um projects um one i'm just beginning which is about called uh, i've just got a small search grant from the british academy for a project called understanding social change through autobiographical narrative uh, where I'm going to be looking at material from the Burnett Archive of Working Class Autobiography, which is actually held at my university, Brunel University, but also Mass Observation. And that would be about how self-reflexivity of narratives fits in with kind of social change and how structures of feeling evolve and social values emerge and so on. But I want to tie that in uh, as I get onward into a sense of autobiographiction. So I, will, I want to expand the net just from autobiography. That's why I call it autobiographical narratives to give myself a bit of space. Um, and to look at, you know, it, it, exactly the kind of text that I've been looking at in the proletarian answer to the this question. I suppose look at them more in a more rooted kind of political, social context. There's a kind of more, more, slightly more sociological dynamic to that project. That's where I want to go. Um, but before that's fully underway, um, I'm finishing a book which in some ways is, is a kind of sequel to the proletarian answer to the modernist question um, in, in a tangential direction. It's called The Science Fiction Futures of Modernism from Virginia Woolf to 21st Century Feminist Speculative Fiction. Um, and that is about, in some ways, the argument is if modernism was the, was, was the literature of intersubjectivity and social change in the early 20th century, it's now kind of speculative fiction of, you know, in some cases it's quite overt fantasy or science fiction, or in other cases more kind of slipstreamy and, 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 and speculative. But that is the, the, the 21st century equivalent, if you like, of um, of modernism. So and I'm kind of hanging that partly on, on, on Virginia Woolf's discussion of the room with one's own, you know, which she says in a hundred years' time will have a kind of women's fiction. And, and the actual example she gives he comes up with this example of a uh, what's it called? Life's Adventure by Mary Carmichael. This is example, which is actually kind of referring to Marie Stokes, I think. But it, it's, it's a kind of um, Chloe and Olivia share a laboratory together. And then she imagines how, you know, this would be a literature in a hundred years, years of time. And, and what I want to do is try and bring that kind of political impulse from, from the proletarian arts to the modern decision, but trace it through a number of, of, of writers coming up to the present. Um, people like Mitchison again will feature, but also Doris Lessing, but also sort of uh, you know science fiction writers Joanna Ross, Octavia Butler. Um, how we get to to a kind of twenty first century thing where the kind of well, to put it 
we were talking about, I was saying earlier, we, we, we have been warned by, by, by Naomi Mitchison, which could have been the 21st century novel. Why, you know, why we're in a situation now in the 21st century where that kind of range of themes of that is seen as kind of acceptable and mainstream and not some, you know, complete shock to the system that has to be centered and criticized. So it's that kind of shift I'm exploring. I mean, basically, you wolves a hundred years from, from 1929 or 1928 when she was writing. It was only 10 years off, you know. So, so um, I think, I, and in some ways, I think it's a very, you know, insightful book. I think those uh, insightful idea, those changes that have happened are happening as she's laying out. And it's a kind of continuation in some ways of, 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 of the gender element of, of, of her attending answer to the modernist question to kind of sort of suggest that that is actually happening in, 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 in literature. And, you know, that, I don't know, the political situation is not just a bad one. You know, there is a goal in, 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 in sight. You know, one of the reasons there's a count, you know, you get counter-revolutionary movements is because there is actually a revolutionary impulse kind of ongoing. And I think we sometimes lose the picture of that in the kind of current political context. Hmm. That sounds like another fascinating and, and really timely intervention uh, in the discipline, Nick. Um, and perhaps, perhaps when the time comes, uh, you'll come back and talk to us about it. I'd love to. <laughs> but <laughs> I wanted to. I want to thank you very much for coming on uh, New Books in British Studies, um, Corey Gibson. This is New Books uh, in British Studies. I think that's about all we have time for at the minute. We're part of the New Books Network. Um, and I've been speaking to Dr. Nick Hubble about his book, The Proletarian Answer to the Modernist Question, out with Edinburgh University Press last year in 2017. Thank you very much, Nick. Take care of yourself. Thank you. Okay. Bye now. Bye.